0: DW, Living Planet. Hello,
1: and welcome to the very last Living Planet for the year. I'm Charlie Shield. And I'm Sam Baker. On today's show, we're sharing a few of our favourite moments from this year. The things that really made us go, ooh, ah, or wait, Really? Like this
0: interview with carnivore ecologist Mordecai Ogada.
2: I found in my career now working tourism being assumed to be a reason for
3: conservation rather than just a byproduct of conservation.
1: And this one with Bill McKibben.
3: I was in my 20s at the time, and I think I expected that scientists having given a profound alarm about the worst thing that ever happened on the planet, that our political system would move to take action.
0: Plus, an investigation into the illegal activities of the shipping vessels carrying your purchases across
1: the oceans. And the happy return of a bulky marine grass grazer off India's south coast. It's going to be fun. Glad to have you with us.
0: The conversation about shifting away from fossil fuel sources that release gases that heat up the planet got a new twist this year, when oil and gas-rich Russia invaded Ukraine in February and forced the EU to confront the fact
1: that their reliance on fossil fuels funds autocrats such as Putin. After all, Russia earns a lot of money from oil and gas exports. It's really the backbone of its economy. And since the beginning of the war, the Center for Research on Clean Energy and Air has calculated that Russia has earned $250 billion from other countries buying its fossil fuels. For example, Germany is the second largest purchaser of Russian oil and gas after China. And one person who's
0: been outspoken about how the continued use of fossil fuels not only drives climate change, but also gives governments like Russia's and Saudi Arabia's relevancy and power that they wouldn't otherwise have earned, is Bill McKibben. Bill is an author and the founder of several environmental activist organisations, including 350.org. And earlier this year, I got to speak to him on Living Planet about power, about politics and money, and how these things influence and drive the climate crisis. Here's a snippet of that conversation.
3: The most existential world historic reasons to get off fossil fuel have to do with the fact that we are destroying the planet's climate system in real time. But we also now have another opportunity to understand just how closely connected to the worst features of our political life oil and gas are.
0: And I want to talk a little bit about movements and fighting back. Because, I mean, it's clear that we've already established we have the tools we need for a renewable energy revolution. And again and again, we hear that we have the knowledge and the means to stop the worst effects of climate change. We just need the political will to do so. But you've said before that climate activists have been too focused on politics, and in doing so, they've been missing something.
3: Well, you know, there are two levers, I think, big enough that we could pull that are big enough that they might still have an effect on how high the temperature gets. One of those levers is marked politics and people have pulled it pretty hard. It's, you know, we've done our best. The good news is that there's another lever big enough to matter and that one's marked finance or money in American parlance, I think. Uh, Washington is, for the moment, a very frustrating place to work, so we may want to work on Wall Street, too. <laughs> and some of us have been doing that, this divestment campaign, that I helped launch with Naomi Klein about a decade ago, has become the largest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history. We're at about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from fossil fuel. And that's been very helpful in limiting their access to capital. Now the big fight is about trying to get the banks to to stop lending to the fossil fuel industry, to cut off the lifeline to that industry that they've provided. And it's been a big lifeline since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. uh, The four big banks in the US, Chase, Citi, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, have provided a trillion dollars to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, The banking system as a whole over $2 trillion. Uh, That's what keeps them going.
0: The UN meteorologists just recently announced that the world has a 50-50 chance of reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2026. So that's just four years away. And I mean, clearly the alarm bells are ringing, but you've also cautioned that the fight to stop climate change is not necessarily about reason and data and these kind of facts. Can you explain what you mean by that?
3: Well, I mean, look, my experience is peculiar here because I wrote the first book about what we now call the climate crisis, but then in the 1980s, we called the greenhouse effect. Um, And I I was in my 20s at the time, and I, I think I expected that scientists, having given a profound alarm about the worst thing that ever happened on the planet, that our political system would move to take action. And so I kept writing more books and piling up more evidence and having more symposiums and things um, because I thought that's what it would take. It took me a while to realize that we had won the argument. The science was entirely clear, but we were losing the fight because the fight wasn't actually about data and evidence and reason. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. And on the other side of this fight, the fossil fuel industry had so much money and, and so much power that they were able to keep their business model intact, even though they lost the argument about climate change. And that's really when I began organizing.
0: What advice would you then give to people who do care about the climate, but they feel kind of small and insignificant compared to all that?
3: We, each of us are small and insignificant compared to both the power of the fossil fuel industry and to the scale of the physics involved in climate change. The only way around it is to join together with others. And that's why there are these organizations now that can take that energy and put them to good common use. That's our hope. And if we build campaigns large enough, then Uh, our individual voices will swell into a chorus perhaps loud enough to begin to drown out the power of the Exxon's and the Putins and the other real villains on this planet who seem determined to keep us locked in our current brutal course. We have a window open, though that window is closing, and we need now to move as we've never moved before. We have to figure out how to work together to save lives. And, and it'll be difficult, but it's not beyond us if we get to it.
1: That was Bill McKibben, environmental journalist, author, and founder of 350.org. You can listen to the full interview in that episode. Just search for Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. And speaking of power, money, and rampant
0: environmental degradation, that's a neat segue to another story that we wanted to highlight from this year. Our coverage of an environmental crime happening out at sea
1: that's going largely undetected. Earlier this year, DW's investigative unit teamed up with Lighthouse Reports, a European nonprofit newsroom, along with eight other media outlets. They spoke with whistleblowers about the industry's dirty secrets. Some of which include the fact that cargo ships aren't complying with
0: environmental regulations to save themselves time and money. And that's having devastating effects on the oceans. Naomi Conrad was one of the reporters on the case.
4: Here's a little bit of it. Coffee mug in one hand, pen in the other, I'm about to call an engineer who's on a vessel anchored thousands of miles away. He's warned me he might be a bit sloppy as he's just finished a gruelling 16-hour shift in the engine room. Hello. Hey, hello. Hey, how
3: are you?
4: I'm afraid I can't tell you too much about the man as he's taken quite a risk by talking to me. He says he was looking for adventure when he joined his first vessel only a few years ago and was totally unprepared for the harsh realities of life at sea. It wasn't only the impunity with which superiors bullied junior crew members that came as a shock. It was also the indifference with which engineers routinely ignored environmental rules and regulations. Including oil pollution at sea. This is the sound of a ship's engine room. The engineer recorded it for me, awkwardly hidden away behind a generator so no one would ask him what on earth he was up to. The machines that power the ships that crisscross the globe are gigantic. Oil from the engine room drains into a tank in the bottommost part of the boat the bilge. Depending on the ship's design, the tank also contains fluids from the ship's internal drainage systems, nasty chemicals and water. It's referred to as bilge water and it's a noxious mix. That's why it's been regulated for decades. The water must be treated before it's discharged overboard. And, uh, I'll let the engineer take over so from here.
3: We're supposed to discharge the liquid from that tank to overboard through this thing called as uh, an oily water separator. So what that separator basically does is it separates the good liquid from the bad liquid.
4: The bad liquid uh, is discharged at the next harbour. All big vessels are required to have a working oily water separator. But the engineer sent me several videos that show that one of the ships he worked on recently had come up with a pretty clever way to circumvent it entirely. It's a shaky video filmed upside down. It follows a pump connecting the bilge tank to a valve nearby.
3: And we have facility to discharge the contents of that directly overboard.
4: To protect the whistleblower, I can't tell you about the owner of the vessel, or where, or when the bilge dumping happened. I've also spoken to three other men, and their accounts were all very similar. Bilge water was pumped into a tank where it had no business to be then quietly discharged into the ocean. So why did we spend months investigating illegal dumping that happens far out at sea and is very difficult to find? Well... It's contaminating our
1: oceans.
4: Kerstin Magnusson, a Swedish ecotoxicologist, has been studying the effect of oil pollution on marine environments for years. She concedes that it's almost impossible to disentangle the impact of bilge dumping from the many other chemicals and rubbish that are routinely dumped into our oceans. But her studies show a clear and negative impact of oil on marine environments – particularly on spawning grounds. You could see that uh, you have an effect on fertilisation, I mean the actual fertilisation of eggs of a number of species. You have effects on the larval development, that the larvae develop in strange ways. In fish larvae you can see like malformations of the jaw. Another scientist showed me videos of coat larvae. They're tiny crustaceans that live in the ocean and filter the water expose their eggs to even a small amount of oil and the larvae's hearts are completely deformed. What academics are still unsure about is whether the pollution moves all the way up the food chain. What they do agree on is that it shouldn't be happening at all. But happening it is, and the reasons are financial. The shipping industry is a tight-margin business where any delay costs money. Only a small group of people are likely privy to the illegal activities the crew members working in the engine room. But there's another way to monitor oil pollution at sea, satellites. Satellite imagery and data provided to us by an environmental group, SkyTruth, helped identify more than 1,500 illegal dumps globally in just a year and a half. These cases include repeat offenders and bilge dumping in protected marine areas. But that's likely only a fraction of the actual spills. According to the group's estimate, the amount of oily water dumped into the oceans could amount to more than 200,000 cubic metres annually, or roughly five times the equivalent of the 1989 Exxon Valdez spill.
0: That was Naomi Conrad with that investigation into bilge dumping. Her original story was a bit longer and more detailed, so check out that episode from April if you'd like to hear the full version, which you can also watch on our YouTube channel if you just search DW Planet A.
1: This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shields. And I'm Sam Baker. So one interview that really made me think more deeply about conservation this year was a chat I had with a carnivore ecologist in Kenya. His name is Mordecai Ogada, and he's currently the director of Conservation Solutions Africa, an organization that consults on resource management. He's possibly better known, though, for his book, co-authored with John Mabaria, called The Big Conservation Lie. Ogata is highly critical of many current conservation models. He points out that these models are a Western concept that allows foreigners to come to places like Kenya, set up tourism businesses in the name of conserving species, all while removing local people from their land and ignoring local knowledge about how to protect these animals and live alongside them. He instead calls for a different way of thinking about conserving ecosystems one that doesn't focus so much on separating animals and humans, and one that doesn't depend so heavily on profit.
0: I thought this one was a great interview. It's one that really makes you question some very steadfast ideas about how to look after wildlife and who should be doing that, if indeed it should be done at all. Let's listen
2: to a bit of it. I found in my career now working, tourism being assumed to be a reason for conservation, rather than just a byproduct of conservation, and that has caused problems because it it results in us prioritizing the needs of tourism above the needs of wildlife and and people themselves. These include the way we admire certain animals more than others. So when you get into tourism, you you get into a lot of uh, people who are single species conservation programs like save the elephant, save the lion, save this, that, the other. Yet none of these species live in isolation. Tourism does not fund conservation, but this myth has been very durable and and is very widely believed.
1: Yeah, if anything, when I think of tourism, I worry about the negative effects of tourism on places and ecosystems. Mm -hmm. You know, just too many people being there, the flying and traveling to get to other places. This has a lot of environmental impacts.
2: Yes. Wildlife survives in spite of tourism. If you look at the big draws like the Maasai Mara in Kenya, the density of lodges and tourist camps, the amount of trash coming out of those camps, the traffic of vehicles going there to deliver beers and various other hotel supplies, the sewerage they are putting out into the Mara River, the impacts of tourism are very heavy on the environment. And, And the other thing is that We forget to mention that the typical tourist who comes on safari tourism to Africa is someone with a very heavy carbon footprint. You see two people flying around in a helicopter because that's what they paid for and that's what the business is. So every business aims to succeed. That automatically means that they'll be seeking the wealthiest, most uh, heavily consumptive tourist because that's where the money is. No one wants to make less money.
1: What do you see as the major... Problems standing in the way of conservation today in Kenya?
2: The other problem we have is that uh, we seek to drive wedges between the smallest wildlife and people. East Africa is known to be the cradle of mankind. People have evolved with these rangelands, these animals, these, these rivers, these lakes here over millennia. They come in on the ground and find this community living in a place where there's wildlife, and they come and say, hey, we want to make a tourism facility for you so you can make money from it. So first thing we need is for you guys to move out of this particular area. Once that is done, the NGO gets donor funds and comes and builds a lodge. And then the lease fee for the land is pegged to profits. All these NGOs do is hire very smart accountants who declare losses year after year after year. So they end up with this land, with elephants and lions and everything in it and a lodge in it, basically rent-free. And then the other very serious problem is that to guard these lands, they operate arms and ammunition outside the state system. So we have an armed group of people here working at the behest of an NGO.
1: Some who donate money to these groups, or the groups themselves would argue that this is important work they're doing to stop poaching. What would you say to that argument?
2: Poaching is a bogeyman. Deliberate wanton destruction of wildlife on large scale, it's a Western thing. It's something that happened in the United States with the bison, the passenger pigeon. It happened in Europe as well. Africa, there's there's been some use of wildlife for food But the poaching and trade in wildlife parts is a foreign influence that has come into Africa. Even where it happens, it happens to feed external markets. So poaching is a bogeyman, but it's a very important bogeyman because it justifies any violations of rights that may happen. If you are seen inside a national park, the rangers do not seek to arrest you. You get shot on sight. That's what the whole hue and cry in the West about Quote unquote poaching has caused.
1: I'm curious, do you think foreign NGOs should be focusing their efforts on other things? For instance, combating climate change, which, of course, we know countries in Europe, North America, and Australia have some of the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions, or other issues that are global and do still impact wildlife in Kenya and around the world?
2: Yes, I think the biggest single problem today is pollution. I mean, that includes emissions. And I think these NGOs avoid addressing those because, you know, there's no good optics of emissions. But you cuddling a baby elephant is wonderful optics. And that brings money. And it's all about the the money. You know, like not anyone can be a doctor, not anyone can be an accountant, but it seems absolutely anyone can be a conservationist anyone who decides to come to Africa and say, I've dedicated my life to conserving baboons or chimpanzees or whatever. So I think we need a huge dose of skepticism all over the world, not just in Kenya. And conservation in India or China should be as per the needs and aspiration of the Indian people, Chinese people, and in Kenya, the needs and aspirations of the Kenyan people. We need to unlearn that thought that the West is right in terms of conservation, or what I call conservation colonialism, where you have these ideas developed in the West and imposed on countries in the global South, countries that have environments that are far more intact or in better condition than the environments in the countries from which these impositions are coming.
1: That was Mordecai Ogada, carnivore ecologist and co-author of the book, The Big Conservation Lie. If you want to hear that full interview, as well as the rest of the show it was featured in, check out the episode Rethinking Conservation. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And so how we can protect and conserve
0: species was something that we grappled with a lot on the show this year. And that's because mass extinction is becoming an increasingly real prospect for the world. Earlier this year, we had a UN report estimating that one million species out of approximately
1: eight million in the world are currently at risk of dying out. Now, one story that I wanted to mention today was a good news story. And it was also a story that showed that efforts to bring species back from the brink can really pay off. Um, So this was about a creature known as the dugong reporter anupama chandra sekaran went to a new marine reserve on the southern coast of india to see how populations of these marine mammals which are kind of similar to manatees how they're doing
2: it was somewhere in the morning between 7 and 7:30 7 a.m
5: this is s Muturaman and he is speaking in tamil Muthuraman belongs to a traditional fishing community that casts their nets in the Palk Strait, calm waters between the southeastern coast of India and the northern tip of Sri Lanka. (inaudible) Muthuraman is part of a team that keeps an eye out for poachers trapping dugongs in coastal areas around India's southeastern coast. These Jumbo recluses can reach lengths of 10 feet and weigh as much as 800 pounds or 360 kilograms. That's equivalent to the size of a polar bear. As an anti-poaching watcher with the Forest Department, Muduraman records dugong sightings through phone calls from fishermen in the area. Like the one he received around 7.30am during the last week of May. He couldn't believe what he had heard.
2: Fishermen have seen dugong mothers with their calves. But this was the first time they had sighted five dugongs together.
5: The numbers were much higher in the past. Fisher folk in the area hunted them as a delicacy to sell this expensive meat illegally. Sivakumar Kuppaswamy, an academic working on dugong conservation projects in this region, was elated to receive photographs of this recent sighting. In fact, the morning I telephoned Sivakumar to talk about his dugong conservation work was the day of the monumental sighting. Today,
2: five dugongs together sighted by our team. So this is amazing. In fact, this information was passed by fishermen. So this is a network we created.
5: The network of fisherfolk has gone from hunting dugongs to rescuing them. This was after outreach work by the Wildlife Institute of India that educated them about the dugong and its role in boosting fish populations. Adult dugongs can consume up to 40 kilograms of seagrass a day through constant browsing. This is why conservationists label dugongs as the ocean's natural vacuum cleaner, Their incessant nibbling stokes fruiting and flowering of seagrasses that absorb dissolved carbon dioxide and oxygenate the water. This creates a nutrient-rich feeding and breeding ground for octopuses, seahorses, small sharks and stingrays. But it is only recently that fisherfolk have started viewing the dugong as an ecological saviour. I met Nagalingam, a 60-year-old fisherman in the fishing hamlet of Manamilkodi on the eastern coast of South India. He admitted that his community had relished dugong meat.
0: Earlier, the community hunted and ate dugongs. It was considered
2: a healthy meal.
5: Dugong meat also fetched a higher price than fish.
2: People are very poor and uh, people used to poach this animal because they get some income from, uh, from the dugong meat. So when you are telling the poor fishermen, don't kill the animal from where they're getting income, is the very toughest task for me.
5: Still, hunting was clearly a big threat to the existence of dugongs in Indian waters. Hunting of dugongs was banned in 1972, but its implementation was poor. Even as recently as 2015, 12 to 15 dugongs, that's 10% of the existing population, were being poached annually in the country. Shivakumar and his team reached out to the community to try and convince them to stop hunting dugongs. They had little success.
2: Initially, we tried various awareness programs, various negotiation, discussion, talk with the fishermen. Nothing worked, actually.
5: Frustrated that their efforts weren't working, conservationists huddled and decided to flip the communication tactic. They started focusing on the economic benefits of seagrass trimming by the dugongs for the fishing community. It was a job that would cost at least 250,000 US dollars for fishermen to do themselves. This helped turn the tide. Muturaman, who is part of the anti-poaching squad and a fisherman himself, agrees.
2: dugongs are seen as a friend of the fishermen and most people in this community have stopped hunting them.
5: In fact, they are out and about rescuing dugongs trapped in fishing nets. Like this young dugong that you hear fishermen struggling to lift and throw into the water. This rescue was an important one because dugongs give birth to a young one only every three to seven years. In fact, the mating season is on now as we speak. And that's probably why five of these shy animals were sighted in the waters near the South Indian fishing hamlet of Manamilkudi. For DW, I'm Anupama Chandrasekharan in Rameshwaram, India.
0: And if you'd like to hear that full story from Anupama, go and check out that episode wherever
1: good podcasts are found. Well, that is a wrap for Living Planet in 2022. All in all, another year of fascinating environmental stories from around the globe. As always, thank you
0: so much for listening. And a very special shout out to those of you that left us reviews and
1: sent us emails this year. We really appreciate it. As for the rest of you, it isn't too late. (laughs) It's never too late, of course, to rate and review Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Think of it as a special New Year's gift. Yeah. (laughs) A big thanks this week to Jürgen Kuhn for his help in the studio. I'm Sam Baker. And I'm
0: Charlie Shield. Take care. We'll be back in 2023 with more environment stories from around the world.